I'm Sheriff Joe Lombardo from Clark County, and I'm here to talk to you about the tragic event that's taken place at the Mandalay Bay out on the Las Vegas Boulevard South. We experienced an active shooter situation approximately 10.08 p.m. tonight. Uh, we had calls come into dispatch of multiple shots being fired uh, from the direction of the Mandalay Bay towards the Route 91 concert that was taking place on the east side of Las Vegas Boulevard. Welcome to the Stone on Air podcast, the weekly dose for October 4th, 2017. Before all of this, ever went down in another place, another town. Tom Petty, the song is called You Were Just A Face in the Crowd. From 1989's Full Moon Fever. Appreciate you finding the most listened to, the most downloaded, the most easily accessible podcast in the city of Chattanooga. My name is Brian Stone at Stone on Air on all social media. there ever was a time to say a case of the Mondays. I know this is Wednesday when this podcast is released each week, but this is being recorded on a Monday. A couple reasons for that, which I'll tell you about in mere moments. Conflicting reports on the health of Tom Petty, which I'll get to in the second segment, as you can clearly tell as a regular listener to the uh, to the podcast, a completely different intro and um, overall approach. This right here is my... I literally pen to paper. I, I do some Word documents and I do some memos on phone, but most of, uh, of what I do is, is pen to paper. This is a piece of paper that I printed off from, um, uh, from work when I left today. That's the podcast idea sheet for this week that I just jot down ideas throughout each week. And then come Tuesday, I put them all together and uh, I do a show. This is that piece of paper. Toss that right over there into the recycle bin. Um, when I woke up on Monday the 2nd, I uh, I heard the news of a shooting, and um, I didn't really think a whole heck of a lot about it. Shootings it tend to not really be all that big a deal to me anymore, and that, that's it's very unfortunate that that's how it's gotten, but I think, that's, I think a lot of us, if you're honest with yourself, kind of feel the same way. It's just we live in such a crazy world. Uh, but when I started to get some of the um, information, it started to make more sense and become more clear as to how devastating this is. And uh, I'll get to more of that in a minute. But I hate to do this show before, like days before 
it's released because even though I understand it's a podcast and it's consumed at different times, um, I my goal is to is to create appointment listening. So I'm hoping that most of you, when you listen to this, it's within a day that it's released. I, 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 if you listen to it uh, 10 years after it's released, I appreciate you the same way. But the goal is, is that I hope that on Wednesdays, you seek out the show. That's why, even though I wanted to release this earlier because it's been done since Monday the 2nd, I didn't because I didn't want to break consistency. And coming from the radio background, consistency is king and um, it's just tough for me to uh, to break some of those molds. So I'm in Knoxville this week, in the middle of the week, for some training for the new transition to the new job. So I guess I'm going to not stop going to work after all. If you heard that podcast back before, I won't bore you with the details, but uh, I am going to have a new job with this new company, and it's going to be similar to what I was doing already. It's not really going to change my um, my daily routine and it's going to allow me to still be able to do recording and still do the show. And so I'm, I'm pretty fortunate. I don't like to say the word uh, lucky often because I'm not really, uh, in this case, I'm not lucky. I've, I, uh, I'm, I have value and, and, uh, and this is going to be a good situation, but I am definitely fortunate. And so that's why I had to record this on Monday because I was going to be on the road in Knoxville and I didn't want to mess with trying to do this in a hotel room. And so I just went ahead and did it on Tuesday. And I mean, excuse me, on Monday. And in some ways, that's good because this is this is a fresh story. And to give me a couple days to sit on it, the emotions either can for some people, depending on how you handle certain things that uh, might rattle you, they can sometimes simmer, they can sometimes boil up even more, uh, and then it turns into from from just support and empathy and sympathy into anger and, uh, and argument. At least that tends to seem how the, the news cycle goes in the United States of America in this day and age of 2017. So it's kind of cool to just go ahead and do this. I have just not a single note in front of me. I have a few things printed off that I'm going to get to here in a second, but uh, just kind of winging it here. But when I... Um, the first major story I remember growing up was Columbine. And then the next major story I remember growing up was 9-11. Of course, that's all of us for the most part anyway. Um, and then in 2003, there was another very smaller event that stuck with me and hit me very, very hard. And I'm going to explain what that is here in just a minute. But really in the end, what this comes down to in the news cycle and in the passing parade and just life in general. I talked about it in a podcast a while back. I'm selfish as hell. I'm really only worried about myself, but I don't burden other people with my selfishness. I try to take care of myself. I do the whole, you worry about you and I'll worry about me routine in life. You do what you're going to do. I don't care. I'm going to do what I do. You shouldn't care either. So when a big story comes out of any kind of, tragedy no matter what it is natural disasters terrorist attacks mass shootings deaths in family car accidents blah 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 blah. just insert here i become very desensitized to this and unless it is something that i can personally identify with something i can truly uh something so emotionally identifiable I don't really, it doesn't really bother me, like emotionally. I mean, of course, it's sad. I don't want anything bad to happen. You know, the hurricanes in Houston and Florida. You know, I mean, that's awful in Puerto Rico. That's awful. But, I mean, you, you live in a place where there's hurricanes all the time. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, I feel terrible, and I hope everybody's okay, and I hope everybody gets things taken care of well, but I don't emotionally care. 
I mean, I know that sounds awful to say that, but that's honestly how I think about things. And I think I don't think that that's unique to me. I think that's a lot of people. Some people care about everything. Some people are super, you know, Mother Teresa types and some are selfish like me, whatever. So in 1999, Columbine, it's one of those I remember where I was moments, at least I remember where I was at, at a portion of that day when we were sitting around talking about it. I was 19 years old. I was one year removed from high school. 2001, we have all the same feelings. 2003, there was this club up in Northeast somewhere. I think it was New England up there, but I'm not sure. And there was a band playing called Great White. And some of you will know exactly who they are. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's my, 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 I'm I'm once bitten, twice shy, baby. That song. And I have two or three others. 80s band. And they were playing at this ratty little bar, club kind of place, kind of like the Old Bay. If you remember the Old Bay over off, it's now apartment complex, is over off King Street and by the Times Free Press. I was working at KZ106, the classic rock piece of crap station here in town, doing overnights back then. And this happened very late at night. It was a club, a late night show, probably after midnight, right around midnight. And so I've got the TV on. It's, we always had the, one of the news channels on. And I see this story coming in. I'm 23 years old at that time. And I still think a lot of the same ways. I mean, I've grown and matured and blah, blah, blah. But I'm not much different now than I was then. And I, I, I was horrified by what I was seeing, by the images and the pictures that I was seeing. So there's this show. And they have this little just crappy pyrotechnics thing. And it catches the place on fire. They've got this old foam it's uh, a you know, noise-canceling foam, so-called, probably 20 years old, soundproofing foam, foam, I guess what I'm trying to say. And it just ignited. It went up like it was torched in gasoline. And the place just went up in flames. And there was only like two ways out. Everybody panicked. And I don't know how many people died. I can't remember. But the people, it was such a rush to the door. The one door to get out, it was so jammed. People are, were literally pulling people through and they couldn't get them through while they were half burning to death. It was awful. To this day, I remember sitting there thinking, I mean, almost crying emotionally inside, bawling because, because back to that selfishness and that identifiable situation, that could have been me if that was here in Chattanooga. And we'll just use the Bay as an example because it's a similar kind of club. It's long gone now. I didn't coin the phrase, but the fear of missing out, the hashtag FOMO, that was me until I was like 32 years old. Like, I couldn't miss the big event. I couldn't miss what I considered cool, or I would feel like I would lose credibility. That's a foolish way to think, obviously, but that's how I was then. And I know that if Great White was playing at the Bay, I would have been there. And if there was a fire, I could have died. And that scared the shit out of me. And it made it emotionally tugged at me. And that story still to this day haunts me. But a lot of these other ones don't. There's mass shootings and atrocities and all over the world daily. So I'll just use some examples. I pulled some some that just everybody's heard of. The Virginia Tech shooting in 2007 at that time was the largest mass killing in the modern history of the United States. 33 people were killed. I don't go to a university. I've only been on a couple of university campuses in my life and don't have kids in, in a college. Um, don't, don't really, well, yeah, that sucks. 
2009, Fort Hood shooting. 13 people were killed, injured more than 30. Well, Fort Hood is a military installation of some kind. People sometimes die in military action of any kind or installations or bases. Doesn't really grab me uh, all that much emotionally. 2011, the Tucson shootings were... Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords was shot and miraculously lived. Six people died there. That was in like a parking lot, I think. Uh, maybe at a, a grocery store or something. Yeah, Safeway. It was basically, as con- what it says here, a, a constituent meeting. Basically, a campaign rally of sorts. I mean, I have some people I hope win elected offices, but I'm never going to go to a campaign rally. I'm never going to you know, go out and try to register voters or get involved like that. So I'm not ever going to get shot at a constituent meeting or a campaign rally. So, you know, it doesn't emotionally grab me. Again, I'm self-proclaimed here, most selfish guy you've ever met. 2012, Aurora, Colorado, Century 16 movie theater. At that time, now the largest number of casualties in a shooting in the United States until the next one coming up here in a minute. How many were killed here? 70, 12 were killed, 70 were injured for that dumb Batman movie. Late night showing. I don't go to movie theaters, and I sure as hell wouldn't watch a Batman movie. So I'm not going to get shot in a movie theater. Doesn't scare me. Doesn't emotionally register. Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. 28 dead. Horror that people felt for this. I understand why, but I don't emotionally connect. It's children in a school. Everybody always says, if you don't have kids, you'll never understand what it's like. And this is the exact same setting. You're right. You're absolutely correct. I don't have kids, and I don't understand what it would be like to have one killed in a shooting. It doesn't emotionally get me. The Charleston shooting, Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, nine people were killed by that racist little asshole 21-year-old kid. They might as well have been shot on on a parking bench. Doesn't matter to me that they're in a church. I'm an agnostic. That doesn't mean anything to me. That doesn't emotionally grab me whatsoever. They might as well have been shot in a Subway sandwich shop. It doesn't. The, the, the setting there doesn't matter to me. It's sad because people died at the hands of foolish, needless, senseless racism. But it doesn't matter where because it was in a church. Didn't do anything to emotionally uh, upset me more than just a, a feeling of of just initial sadness. 2016, now the next largest mass shooting in the history of modern America. The 2016 Orlando nightclub shooting, 49 killed, 58 wounded. It's the deadliest terrorist attack in the United States since September 11th, 01. This was at a gay and lesbian bar. I'm not gay. I'm not lesbian. I don't go to nightclubs. I don't go to dance clubs. I'm not going to get shot there. I'm not going to get killed. It doesn't emotionally grab me. And that brings me back to the 1st of October the Route 91 Harvest Country Music Festival on the Las Vegas Strip in Paradise, Nevada. Jason Aldean, a huge country music star, at a packed outdoor concert, a gunman located on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel and Casino across Las Vegas Boulevard, fired into the festival crowd. And I I, I have looked at very little on TV. Um, I, uh, I've, I first went to read about it online on the Monday following and I pulled up one of the I think it was CNN it was just because it was the first one that popped up I don't I don't watch CNN that much anymore but it was 
the clip that you've all seen of, you know, of the idiots all over the place that have their phones up in the air. And yes, I grab a few seconds of a clip every now and again of a show, but holding it up for long periods of time is, is ridiculous. But, uh, so somebody was doing that. Thousands of people were probably doing that. And it's a clip of, you can see, you know, Al Dean playing and then you hear the shots and it takes a minute. You know, if you didn't already know, what is that? Is that part of the, you know, this is Las Vegas for crying out loud. Who knows what's going on? And before you know it, it's, it's, it's a melee and it's chaos. And I got like 30, 40 seconds into it. And I just, I had, I, I, I clicked it off. I, I, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh my God. Oh my God. Like chills and shivers and like real human emotions that lots of people feel all the time for things that don't even rattle me or make me even have a second glance. It scared the shit out of me. And I didn't ever go back and finish the clip. And I pulled up, I even printed this off, I haven't read it. Gunman Stephen Paddock, Paddock, whatever the hell his name is, was an accountant who played $100 a hand at poker and I, and I, and I printed it off and I'm still not going to read it. I'll throw that over there in the recycle bin. I couldn't take it. I didn't want to hear one more second of it because that I identify with because of my selfishness and things that matter to me the most or where I can put myself in that moment scared me to death. Scared me to death. That wasn't just, that wasn't some random thing like some weirdo out in the middle of the desert, you know, communal kind of oddball thing that only sketchy people are involved in or, you know, it was so far outside the mainstream that of course something weird happened. This was a two or three, maybe four year old, uh, so recurring concert series or festival of sorts with big names, real artists, real people, most likely in a vacation setting, which most of the time, that's what these kinds of things are. And somebody just sprays machine gun fire into the crowd. I'm getting chills up and down my spine right now just saying that again. Keep in mind, this is less than 24 hours since it's happened as I record this. And, oh, is that, is that crazier than, you know, a bunch of kids getting killed? I don't know. But I can't emotionally identify with that. This is my setting. This is what I want to do most. You go to the beach, I go to music festivals, specifically Bonnaroo every single year, but I've been to, quick thinking, three this year. That's, that's about par for a year for me. Sometimes might get upwards of five, sometimes maybe only two. So I'd say an average of about three per year. 420 in Atlanta, Bonnaroo, and Riverbend doesn't count. I guess it does. Hell, I, in, this, in, this, in this setting, Riverbend does count. And then Pilgrimage Festival just the other day. I can't, and often when you hear these awful stories and you just, you hear the numbers and you think, oh my God, 58 people are dead. And then there's 400 people injured. Oh my God, 400 people, you know, injured means almost dead or just kind of injured or whatever. You don't, sometimes don't stop and think about the specifics of like what was going on, the stampede, the, 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 the chaos, the, uh, the, the panic going on. All that factors into the horror, not just number of people dead however many it is it's 50 something it could be 21 it could be 153 it could be 12 the number doesn't matter that is not what makes this scary what makes this scary is i can feel it i can feel how i can feel those emotions i can i can cre create that 
hypothetical in my mind. I can play it out, and it scares the shit out of me. And if you don't think that I've sat around and thought about before that sometimes these monstrous festivals and sometimes these packed NFL stadiums and these big sporting events are not prime target for some of the most chaotic, tragic, awful to even think about possibilities, I have thought of that. And I can guarantee you people a lot more evil than me have thought about that too. So I always say don't live your life in fear. That is the worst thing you can do because the chances are, the chances are all in your favor. You will not be killed by a terrorist. You will not be shot at a, at a music festival. You will not be shot in whatever setting it is that, that makes you, you happy, that brings you joy, the beach, or we insert this here, the, the, the casinos, generally speaking. Whatever it is you do for fun, you won't be shot there. You won't die there. Nobody's going to attack you. And so when I don't emotionally connect with all these other things, I just move along like it's just part of the news cycle. What's next? But that, that building catching on fire and people horrifically dying in 2003 has never left me, has never left my memory. I think about that when I'm in small quarters, when I'm in small places, when I'm in little rinky-ass dink uh, music clubs, which I'm not in as much as I used to be, but I still do. JJ's next Saturday for uh, the Dead Deads will be in town. I'll be making a trip back to JJ's for the first time in a while. That's on the 7th of October, by the way. That's a little shithole of a building. There, you know, there are times when I get in a room and it's so crowded and I think, what could happen here? Something could happen here. That's when I start to live in a little bit of fear. And people, you know, you can say the same thing, use my own advice. Stop living in fear, dude. Don't do it. But this this kind of stuff is scary. And um, this is when I understand it more when people say don't politicize something that's so tragic. Because I've done that before. When something comes up, like a shooting in a, in a theater or something, I don't have an emotional connection to that. The emotional connection I have to that is there's too many effing guns. But then I calm down. Stop. 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 People are hurting. People are upset. Don't do that. That's wrong. I have a hard time with that in those in those situations. And I mean like through a Twitter, social media kind of thing. This is where I feel it. Like, would you shut up about guns? Guys, would you shut up about the president for a minute, please? Can we stop talking about Russia, this fake-ass story with Russia? Can we please stop all this? Something awful has happened. But I understand that some people won't emotionally connect with this like I do. And that's okay. This is the Stone On Air podcast for October 4th, 2017. This is a song from 2006's Highway Companion from Tom Petty called Damaged by Love, another one of his just absolutely soul-touching songs. A guy who seemingly could write a song to fit any emotional setting you're in. Uh, confl- conflicting reports as of press time, which was Monday the 2nd, that he uh, he had died earlier in the day. They said that. I'll get into it more here in a minute. I don't know if he's dead yet, but for all intents and purposes, Tom Petty will never be the vibrant human being that we all knew that he was. And I'll talk more about that coming up next. I'm uh, not doing a stone's throw. I'm not doing a, re- a regular show. I'm just kind of just kind of talking into a microphone before I uh, go to Knoxville for uh, some, uh, some business stuff. So I appreciate you guys uh, sticking with me. I appreciate you guys hanging out each and every week on the Stone Hunter podcast. And I'll be right back.
This is the Stone on Air podcast. In some incredibly sad news, Sunday evening Tom Petty was found unconscious in his Malibu home and rushed to the hospital, stemming from a full cardiac arrest. TMZ is reporting that the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer has been taken off life support and is hanging in there. The tabloid cites law enforcement sources that say Petty is currently at the UCLA Santa Monica Hospital, where he was taken by EMTs after they were able to get a pulse from the unresponsive singer-songwriter. The site says his condition was critical from the moment he was found. Now, of course, Billboard has reached out to Petty's camp for comment on the reports, but has not heard back as of press time. Welcome back to the Stone on Air podcast. You and I will meet again when we're least expecting it. Somewhere in some far off place, I will recognize your face. This is from 1991's Into the Great Wide Open. You and I will meet again. This kind of goes to a place where I would I would usually do a stone's throw about it and I'd bitch and moan like a loudmouth jerk about bad information, fake news, fake outrage. But I'm not going to do that today, but I will just throw out just a, a little bit of concern that it is it is very concerning that we continue to tolerate bad information. Tom Petty was in, in critical condition when the reports first hit Monday morning or Monday late morning. And then by Monday afternoon, CBS was reporting via LAPD that Tom Petty had died. And then he hit, no, 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 sorry, no, he didn't die. It's, it's frustrating. Um, but as of press time of this show, Tom Petty was still alive. But based on everything that comes from TMZ, which is just a, it's mind boggling that TMZ is the most trusted source for most any kind of news, but certainly from the sports and um, uh, entertainment world anyway, that he was not dead, but. For all intents and purposes, from what I can tell, Tom Petty that we all know and love uh, is is no more. Even if he has survives this cardiac arrest and this um, and this awful position that he was in medically and, and, and health-wise, I don't think we'll see him playing any music ever again and don't know the guy personally. So if he's not playing music, then uh, that is obviously something that's uh, that's my emotional outlet there to, to, to Tom Petty. Of course, I back to what I was talking about last segment, I... I feel for his family, technically, but it's really more about me and my love of his music and how far it goes back. It's such a transcendent uh, artist that he's like three generations, two and a half generations are very wildly familiar with his music. And uh, mo- most of the time, there's rarely a situation where you find somebody says, yeah, Tom Petty, I don't really like that guy. I don't really like that stuff. Growing up playing music, and I'm just making this up as I go. I'm sorry if I stammer and stutter a little bit, but um, growing up playing music, there was three bands or artists that I would constantly try to learn the songs uh, on guitar, and 
all three of these bands at the time weren't necessarily my favorite. They end up being some of my favorites. But at the time, I just did it because I liked it and it was easy. And that was Neil Young, Nirvana, and Tom Petty. And all three of them used the same similar technique. They took what are the bass chords on a guitar for uh, just your beginners, uh, like seven or eight chords. And then you can you can make 10 variations of each chord and then you get all into intricate and I can't go down that road. But, you know, seven, eight, A, B, C, D, G, F, those chords. Basically, those three guys, Neil Young, Kurt Cobain and Tom Petty took those same chords and just kept recycling them over and over and over again. They didn't do anything that complicated now, they had guys in their bands or that they worked with or their producers that added complex and complicated portions to the music. But the core base of the song was the melody. It was the, it was the, the artistic thoughts in their brains on top of those core three or four chord progressions. You know, any old asshole can pick up a guitar and play four chords in a row. But not any old asshole can take four chords in a row and turn them into hit after hit after hit. And that's all Tom Petty ever did. Every single album he put out was littered with top 50 Billboard hits. I used to talk about this a lot. I, I recycled it over and over again on the old crappy KZ-106, classic rock station in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I would um, you know, play the, the garbage music I had to play you know, ad, ad nauseum repeatedly. But anytime Mary Jane's Last Dance came on, or at least a lot of the time, I would talk about how only in Tom Petty's world can he be basically told that's what happened with the record company back in 1994 i think it was you now have to put out a a greatest hits album and because you had to you had to fulfill contracts with a certain amount of albums they usually they were i don't know how it's done now it's completely different these days but you would sign a five album contract or whatever it was and he had to put out an album he didn't have one ready so he just okay well or just didn't feel like it or whatever and so they put out the greatest hits and at because of suggestion of somebody, I don't know if it's a demand, like, why don't you throw a new song on there just for the fun of it? Maybe we'll get some extra plays out of it. Only Tom Petty puts a brand new song on a greatest hits album, and that song becomes damn near one of his greatest hits. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. Mary Jane's Last Dance is one of his greatest hits, one of his most well-known songs, and it was a throw-in on the Greatest Hits album. Think about any other band in the world. Hey, Greatest Hits album time. You know what that means? Career's over. You know what that usually means? Eh, not really a lot to make money about uh, around here. And I know some of the younger people listening don't necessarily, might not resonate with you all that well because the music business is completely different now and Greatest Hits albums, quote unquote, are not a thing anymore. But that was a sign that you were done. And just think of it, just insert your favorite artist. You think they could write one song and throw it in on the greatest hits and it becomes one of their most well-known songs? No. The answer to that is no. It's a rhetorical question. No, they can't. That doesn't ever happen. It's an almost an impossibility, and Tom Petty did it. A Florida guy, uh, Gainesville, I believe, came um, out of a F Florida Gatorland. And I've seen him... Two, three, uh, not that many times, really. Maybe four times, five times, maybe. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. it is more than it is about five. And I talk about this a lot with uh, with Bonnaroo being my place. It's my euphoric, you know, state. It's it's where I have to be. If I don't make it there, I lose my mind. You, yours might be the beach, or yours might be the fishing hole, or yours might be the 50k race, or the hike out in the woods, or the the hang gliding, or whatever it is that just you have to do. 
uh, Bonnaroo is that for me. And so as it's grown up over these years it, and I got more and more uh, comfortable with the landscape and, 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 and Bonnaroo became part of me, then it started to turn into one of those, okay, when's my guy going to be here? When's my guy, when's my band going to be at Bonnaroo? Now, why through Panics, one of, quote, unquote, my bands, but they were the origins for the whole thing. When is it going to go outside of that circle? And it was in 2006, Tom Petty was booked to play Bonnaroo four years after the festival started. And it was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? My guy. And Neil Young was there in 03, so that was the first time, quote-unquote, my guy was there. And then 06, it was like, my guy, Tom Petty, is here, and he brings Stevie Nicks with him. They toured that whole year together. Of course, played Stop Dragging My Heart Around, and she came out and did backing vocals. It was, ah, damn, incredible. Incredible. Saw him in 99 on the uh, Echo Tour for the when I was just starting to see shows, that was a really thrilling experience. Just because I mean I'm done a year and a half removed from moving away from home, and I remember that one pretty vividly. And that was one of his finest albums, Echo. And this is another cool thing with Tom Petty that it's good and bad. He has so many great songs, basically every single one of them. Every single one of them. He doesn't have a bad song. Um, he doesn't have a top ten hit with every song. But he doesn't have a bad song, so you can just you can just comb through the albums and just listen to them for days, and they're incredible. And back in those days, he was still putting out new music regularly through the '90s, and into the 2000s, the 2000s he still was too, but just not nearly as often. And so, as it got towards the tail end of the first decade of the of the century, it turned into more of a a, a celebration act, like a uh, lifetime achievement show and it, it got to where it was just all the same old stuff and so up until about 2006 is is the last time I saw a show where it was truly an original show every single time I've seen them I think two times since then at least one I remember one at Bonnaroo in 2011 I was actually kind of mad it's kind of how where that flipped it's like Tom Petty now come on Bonnaroo we don't need to hear the same damn show over and over again because at that point that's what he was doing but that was where he's making his money I'm not mad at him about it you know, he's not making his money off selling his brand new music anymore, even though he was still putting out some new music. It was about what everybody knew. And he knew how to, he knew how to please you know, 15,000 people at a time. And he did it for another 10, 15 years after he stopped making continuous um, chart-topping music. And so I, I got a little bored with it at the end. But he is, uh, he's incredible. And um, we made the old band, the old garage band I was in, the old uh, Zan Teddy was the name of that band, by the way. A lot of you probably don't know that, but uh, Eric Smith, Aaron Oster, and John Henniger, John Guitar, Johnny Sparks. And we played, we played a handful of shows. We were pretty good. We knew what we were doing. Once upon a time, we were sitting around and we were jamming. We all loved Tom Petty. And one day we were like, you know what? We're damn near a glorified Tom Petty cover band. That's all we sit around and play. And part of it is because it's so damn easy. It's so damn easy. He took music that was so simple and made gold. 80 million records sold in four decades using the same old damn chords over and over and over again. It is incredible. And then in the late 80s and early 90s, he started hanging out with other brilliant musical masterminds like Jeff Lynne 
um, from ELO, who's best known as a, really as a producer for George Harrison, and uh, he's a, basically the brainchild behind the Traveling Wilburys, and he did uh, production work, I believe, with uh, with uh, all those guys, Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, all those dudes. And so Tom Petty's the young guy of that group, and now he's getting taking his brilliant ideas and getting even more genius opinions on his stuff. And by the time he got into the 90s, he was an absolute superstar. It's it's incredible. And Mike Campbell is his longtime guitar player. He always played with him. It was almost always the Heartbreakers, but sometimes it was dubbed the Heartbreakers. Sometimes it wasn't. I don't know. You know, this is the 4th of, of October. This was recorded on the 2nd. He wasn't dead yet. I don't know if he's dead by the time you hear this. Hopefully he's not. Hopefully, hopefully he makes a miraculous recovery. But even if he does, the Tom Petty, the artist we know, is... is probably over with i was doing a little bit of quick searching before i put together this show and i saw the most one of the most recent public appearances he was with um damn it who was with jeff speaking of jeff lynn, he was with jeff lynn i think they were in uh, hollywood on the walk of the star walk or whatever it was jeff lynn joe walsh and 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 tom petty and he looked rough he he did look rough and i don't know why or what his you know his habits are i don't know if it's or maybe it's just age getting to him, not sure. But he looked as old as I've ever seen him look. But he was in bad shape at, uh, at press time of this podcast. So love me some Tom Petty. On the way out here from 1994, Wildflowers what, just blew up in 1994. You Wreck Me, Good to Be King, the title track, Wildflowers itself. And this one is from the tail end of the back of the album. It's called Crawling Back to You, Tom Petty. 66 years old and um, wishing the best for him. But uh, as far as, as as I know Tom Petty, it's it's probably over. My name is Brian Stone. Thank you for listening to this rambling mess of a podcast. I'll get back to a little bit more uh, normalcy. And, uh, you know, formatically, it'll make a little bit more sense and, and be a little bit more focused. I know this one was a little bit aimless, but it was kind of a emotional-driven throw-together-at-the-last-minute show. So... Don't take for granted the things that you love. Do not be a fraud as well. The truth is easy to remember. And continue to watch this space. I will talk to you again as we are in October, man. I cannot believe it. We'll see you later. I'm so tired of being tired. Sure as night will follow day. Most things I worry about never happen anyway. I keep crawling back to you Ooh, I keep crawling back to you